Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Robert Cantwell, founder of Upholdings, an investment firm with an ETF that focuses on concentrated long-term investing and in binding companies that are considered cash flow compounders. We talked to Robert about his hedge fund's conversion to an ETF, which is a first, and things like his bullishness on China, his cautiousness on certain types of growth companies, portfolio construction, concentrated investing, investor returns, and lots more. We ask Robert a key question at the very beginning, but you have to listen to the very end to get the answer. And don't skip ahead on that. This is a good discussion around a strategy that is very different than just buying the overall market. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion with Upholdings' Robert Cantwell. Robert, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Justin. Great to be with you. You have a very interesting and unique background for an investor running an ETF. I was going to start by asking you what your favorite U2 song is, but maybe maybe, maybe we can skip that uh, question or get into it later, if, even if you want to. But just to start, I thought it would be good just if you can kind of tell us your, about your background and how you got to where you are today um, with running your ETF. Well, uh, to your first question, for anyone that makes it all the way to the end of this interview, we'll talk about favorite U2 songs. I'll commit to doing that. Uh, but to your second question, uh, how did I get to, you know, to where I am today managing ETF? Uh, I'm about 15 years into my career. Uh, I started out uh, working in institutional investment management, uh, primarily for a private equity firm, uh, Elevation Partners. They claim not named for one of Bono's songs, but clearly named for one of his songs. The album had just come out a couple of years prior. Uh, and what, what Elevation had sought to do at the time was the, the internet was still relatively in its infancy. Uh, Facebook hadn't even quite yet been founded. It was founded around the same time. And the premise of the firm was, um, let's take brands that are big and then use the internet to make them bigger. Very simple investment premise. Uh, but what we found was that it was actually very, very difficult. So one of the one of the large early investments that Elevation made was a firm called Forbes. And the team bought almost half the company. And the idea was, how do we make Forbes the number one most important place on the web for finance and business news? Uh, well, we found that it was very difficult taking a, a, a magazine culture-led company into a web-first product development, digitally designed-led company. And we were moving so slowly in trying to re-architect that company that you saw a lot of new media business models forming. And so the fund transitioned and began investing in companies like Facebook and Yelp uh, while they were still private, where these pure play media companies uh, were figuring out the new business models on the web much faster. So that was the very beginning uh, of my career. Uh, I was very fortunate I got to work for Roger McNamee, who was one of the primary founders of the firm. Uh, he ran the T. Rowe Price Science and Technology Fund in the 80s up into the early 90s. Uh, he famously had started a couple of different crossover investment firms. And so his whole career was focused on companies uh, going from private uh, into the public realm. Um, the other thing that really stuck out to me about some of the most successful investors that I got to work with at, at Elevation was that they weren't just stock pickers. Uh, they themselves were also individuals that had helped build companies. 
So if I really wanted to be a great investor one day, I also would need to learn how to, how to build a business. Uh, and I was lucky that one of my peers at uh, uh, Elevation at the time, Michael Praisman, had left to go start a company, Everlane. And of course, he first leaves to go start a company. And I say, well, Michael, you know, most companies fail. <laughs> Michael goes, okay, well, you know, let's talk in a couple of years and I'll see if I've got a job for you. And uh, lo and behold, you know, a couple of years in uh, Everlane. So the quick story on Everlane uh, was this was back in about 2010, where e-commerce on the web, if you already knew what you wanted to buy, it was very efficient. Amazon, eBay, Craigslist. If you didn't know what you wanted to buy, that curated lifestyle fashion hadn't really come online yet because J. Crew and Gap were so beholden to these large physical store uh, networks that they had. Uh, so we built Everlane as an online first brand. Uh, it's been a very successful company. Now, ironically, it's big enough that they're opening physical stores. Uh, and it's been, it was a really, really great experience to get to work uh, with a company from the ground level. So bringing those two experiences together, back to your original question, why am I managing an ETF today? And the main reason for that is I see the retail investment management industry undergoing more change than it's seen in the past couple of decades. Uh, the retail investment management industry has been ruled by the mutual fund for decades. I mean, the, the 1940s act is from 1940 uh, and ETFs as a product or as a vehicle rather uh, are really have only been around since the 90s. And the SEC and the government has been very slow uh, with respect to how they're allowing new investment strategies and asset classes to move into the ETF because it's a very powerful vehicle to have something that's so tax efficient and also trades on an exchange with all of the other uh, benefits of broadly distributing your investor base uh, in the way that a mutual fund has. So in just the last few years, we, I see us now at a point where the government has played ball enough to say that ETFs have come far enough along that we're gonna let active investment managers bring their strategies into ETFs. And so we've seen this wave on the fixed income side first uh, with a number of active fixed income vehicles stepping in. And I believe we're in the earliest stages of now seeing equity ETFs have active portfolio managers to bring their strategies into that vehicle. So I think you have a unique perspective, kind of building on that, of having or running a hedge fund and then having that vehicle be um, either transitioned into an ETF or those assets came into an ETF. So we, we wanted to kind of just talk to you about that process to see if we can learn from that and sort of understand that more. So I think just generally, what was the genesis? What was, what was the idea to start of bringing your hedge fund and making that into an ETF? Sure. Um, well, it all started around the time I, I was finishing up at Everlane. Uh, a number of, of close friends and colleagues knew that I was working my way back into investment management. And, and, and they were very sweet. People said, hey, Robert, you know, we now also have some excess cash. We'd love for you to invest it. Uh, and for me, it was, well, what's the quickest and easiest way for me to start um, managing you know, both my money alongside theirs? And that was to create a hedge fund. A hedge fund is the lowest cost uh, from a legal and regulatory perspective because you can open a vehicle, it's registered. Now the trade of the trade-off there is you can only have accredited investors. So the rules are very small, but the limitations are very high on who can come in uh, to that pool of capital that you're managing. And that worked really, really well when I had five to 10 investors. 
But as we added each incremental investor into the fund, I, I mean, it was almost comical between the subscription agreement, between the LLC operating agreement, uh, between additional diligence materials that I'd share with these investors. There was almost 100 physical pieces of paper, uh, in many cases for individuals who just said, you know, Robert, we know you, we know your background, we would like you to invest this for us. We're not going to read any of these any of these pages. Just tell us where you have to sign. And this struck me as one of those broken pre-internet you know, processes uh, where I'm having to manually interact with each individual. There's a mountain of paperwork to get through. If we were to fast forward 20 years, how is it that I would communicate with a new investor to say, hey, would you like to participate in the fund or not? And that's what started me down the path of really studying what are the, what are the uh, vehicles that are available to an investor. There's mutual funds, uh, there's interval funds, uh, there are ETFs, uh, there's other modified versions of ETFs. And I was very pleasantly surprised uh, at having kind of gone through the, the, the nitty gritty of it um, with lawyers who I actually thought were pretty progressive. Because uh, it turns out there's a, there's a very long history of private funds uh, converting into mutual funds. There's a very, very short history of private funds converting into ETFs. But ETFs and mutual funds, they rely on all the same regulation. And so we, there were actually a number of precedents from the mutual fund conversion era that we were able to rely on in order to bring this conversion. Uh, so I, I got a little off topic there, but that connecting back to the issue of onboarding new investors, the, the conclusion was, well, if we could just have a ticker, I could just give new investors a ticker. They could you know, do the research, they can go to the website and they can understand our investment strategy and then ultimately decide whether or not to invest with us through their own brokerage. Did your limited partners like have to approve that or did the money just like come over into the fund itself? Like how did that work? Um, so yeah, getting into the real technicals of it, uh, in, in my specific position as a general partner that owned uh, the majority of the GP, uh, I was able to bring my investors along with it. All the investors did agree to do so. That was a very critical requirement by the SEC. With SEC, because we're going to get into the, the private security piece in a second, the SEC said, and they were very clear, they said, if this fund is truly converting, you have to bring every single investor, every single security, and every single minute of track record since the day you know, your doors ever opened. If you violate any one of those you know, considerations, this is a whole new fund. You know, this isn't a conversion. So from from that standpoint, you know, the LPs had to be on board. Uh, otherwise, this wouldn't have been treated as a true um, fund conversion. Very, very interesting. So that's yeah, because that's so it ha everything had to come in order for the conversion to actually. And that was probably very important to maintain the track record as well for the strategy. Yes. See, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to give the SEC a pat on the back here. There are a number of very clever things built into the way they regulate that prevents a lot of, <laughs> I'll say this, all the marketing nonsense that you're seeing happening in crypto is happening because they, the, that is how unregulated securities were marketed before the government stepped in and said, hold on a second, we need to regulate the marketing of securities that anyone can buy into. And so in this specific case, you know, the, the reason you know, the SEC came up with these rules is because back in the mutual fund era, Mutual funds used to be incubating a hundred different investment strategies at the same time. And what they would do is they would, you know, they would try to cherry pick, you know, the two that had a lot of outperformance and then slap a name on the investment strategy and then go market the product 
and say, whoa, look at the track record on that thing, which turned out to be throwing darts at a board instead of actually a manager that was carrying their track record with them. So I was very, I, I thought they were, you know, pretty, pretty darn sharp uh, with respect to the pieces, you know, that they picked a part of our former hedge fund to make sure that we were being really honest about the track record we were bringing with us. Well, one of the things that I think you probably did that was really good was, you know, a lot of these hedge funds and mutual funds, to your point, you know, launching an ETF around a strategy is probably going to come with lower fees. So in some ways they're going to, you know, potentially cannibalize their business, but you kind of made that decision to bite the bullet. It seems like and said, you know, let's get this strategy in an ETF wrapper, which is the best wrapper for it. It has all the benefits you talked about. Um, some funds, you know, might not decide to do that because they may be, you know, pr protecting their, the higher management fee of those fund vehicles. It's funny you bring that up. Um, I, I was chatting with a good friend of mine that runs a, a hedge fund the other day because he was curious about what I was building. And he, he's early uh, in his in his crease in the first you know five to ten years of managing a fund, and for for managers that are at that mo point of their careers where they're fo focused really hard on performance and you know their performance fee is very important to the amount of cash that they're going to generate for their own business. I agree. Like there is not a very big incentive for them to you know come into an ETF. Now that said. I do wonder about larger hedge funds that are much further along in the game. They're sitting on potential capital gains everywhere in their portfolio, because in some cases they've owned stocks for 10 or 15 years. I do think it's possible that there, there could be some very, very large hedge funds. For example, instead of distributing, because uh, what happens when a hedge fund shuts down, they either have to you know, sell the fund and then distribute the proceeds, or in some cases, they'll try to uh, send the shares in kind to investors. Uh, it is possible that if you're a hedge fund that is otherwise planning on shutting down, the nicest thing you could do to your investors is to convert that entire thing into an ETF so that you can then rebalance all those stocks accordingly. Into You could even just rebalance the whole thing into the S&P 500 index well, with some other diversification requirements being built into there. And what you've done, in effect, is a tax-free delivery of, uh, of the LP positions in the hedge fund. So the, the money incentive is there to do it. So I think it's going to happen, uh, but it's going to take a very thoughtful, patient manager because it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time and your investors aren't necessarily paying you to go through that uh, brain damage of uh, working through the conversion. I want to shift and talk about your investment strategy a little bit. You know, usually when I look at the holdings of, of any given fund, you know, it's usually pretty easy to say they're a value guy or they're a growth guy. But when I look at yours, I mean, they really seem to span. You know, you have you have some good, some large growth companies, but you also have Berkshire Hathaway. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about your, your strategy and what goes into picking the stocks for the fund. Yep. I, I mean, we've been very pleasantly surprised to see that our strategy has took us into uh, a couple different areas. You know, that was certainly not not our intention at the beginning. Uh, I definitely didn't think two years ago when I was starting to manage a high growth uh, fund that Berkshire Hathaway would be one of the largest stocks that we owned uh, around the time that uh, our ETF finally came out. Um, so for us, the, the two most important components are, uh, has the business already achieved um, uh, cash flow break even or cash flow positive? Uh, which means that they have in effect proven that their business model uh, can be profitable and then can be scaled further from there. And then the second requirement is, 
if the business is generating any cash, do they have opportunities to reinvest that cash to continue to grow the business, to either sustain the growth rate, accelerate the growth rate, diversify into new business lines, uh, to widen their moat, whatever the case may be. Because for the investment horizon that we have, which is 10 years, 20 years, however, however long we need to be invested, we have no interest in management you know, sending that money right back to us. Um, so now what this means with, with, a, with a company like Berkshire, Berkshire was a very unique case because normally our preference is businesses like a, like a Facebook or an Alibaba, uh, where Alibaba has $1.2 trillion that transact over marketplaces and has a management team that has found opportunities to deploy that capital into payments, into cloud services, into all sorts of very high return on capital uh, industries in which they capture a high market share position. So that's really a dream security. Uh, but where Berkshire really came into play is six, seven months ago, I've, I've been a, personally, I've been a Berkshire shareholder since the beginning of my investment career. Uh, so I've been very close to the stock. But for, for Berkshire to be trading at about to a little bit discount to book value when the rest of the market was ripping to valuations that we could hardly, we, we had a very hard time justifying. It was one of the most obvious times in the entire history of Berkshire Hathaway to buy the stock. And what was really cool is that not long after uh, we bought into our position of Berkshire, Berkshire started buying back its own stock. Buffett and Munger had been getting so much shit about not deploying a lot of capital during the last, um, during the COVID crisis, that people have missed the largest and most important acquisition that Berkshire's ever made, which is their own shares. Now, the issue with this for, for Compound Kings long-term is as I've said, our goal is to be invested with management teams that are finding new opportunities to deploy that capital at high returns on capital. Berkshire was trading at a discount to its book value. And so the, buying its own book value was the most obvious deployment of that capital. So we need to be really careful about what we're willing to pay for a business like Berkshire, particularly now that it's rallied so much going forward in the future. But that's how a company like that can end up in our portfolio because the places where that management team was gonna be investing was a really high return on investment uh, area. It's interesting because a lot of growth funds, you know, when, when they don't find growth fund, you know, growth stocks that are attractive to them, they'll still buy more growth stocks. But it seems like for you, you know, if you think that part of the market might be a little more expensive or at least certain parts of it, you know, you're willing to go down and buy a Berkshire. You got it. And we had to sell out. I mean, I hate selling growth stocks because I love the companies. You know, there was this, there was this business, uh, Tiger Shares, uh, up fintech holding, which is a Hong Kong, it often gets called the, the Robin Hood of Asia. And it's a little bit more complicated because they have a competitor, Futu, that's there. Uh, but the Tiger team is much sharper. Uh, Interactive Brokers is a key investor in them. And they're running their business for the long term. But their stock went up 10 times in six weeks. And as investors, it is, it is, we have a fiduciary obligation to revisit the investment and figure out whether or not the market opportunity and expectations for growth over the next five to 10 years can justify that sort of uh, crazy valuation. So I, I do think we were in particularly extreme territory in this sort of November to February timeframe, but you know, market's a funny thing. It can, it'll, it can get even sillier again. It's, it seems like your process is largely discretionary, but do you also have quantitative portions? So in, it, in other words, do you screen maybe out the, the list of all stocks down to a smaller list and then maybe you analyze those? Or you know, does, does quantitative you know, investing play any role in your process? I, I'm, 
I definitely think all the best investment firms are able to marry the, the, the quantitative and the qualitative sides of it. Um, so for us, where we focus on the quantitative side is really at the industry and the operating metric level. So if, if we think about our funnel for how do we evaluate a new investment, ideally we start with an industry that we know already. Uh, we track the market share of the leading players within that industry. Uh, when normally what you like to see is a, a stable to growing market share. And then what you look for is, well, what's the business model that's underneath that, that market share grab? Is it a good business model that's going to keep eating more or keep uh, delivering more cash in the future? And then the last piece of it is valuation uh, and whether or not the price is going to let you participate uh, in that or not. And there are plenty of examples where you can see companies that maybe you, you see this a lot on the growth side of the world where there's companies that are gaining market share really quickly, but their business models completely suck. And that keeps us out of a lot of things. You, you talked about valuation and, you know, valuation or at least traditional valuation metrics have come under fire a lot recently, you know, your traditional PE ratio or things like that. How do you think about valuation? I mean, do you use traditional metrics or do you have a different way you look at it? I, cer I certainly think there's, you know, we talked about uh, using book value with Berkshire. Uh, every company depends on the life cycle you're investing. So for the, uh, where we tend to enter on the growth side, we really like, and I know you, you, you want to talk about uh, using marketing to grow a little bit later. One of the multiples we like the most for early stage growth companies is take their gross profit, subtract out their sales and marketing, and then tell me the multiple of their gross profit minus marketing. So I don't want a revenue multiple. I don't want a gross profit multiple. Having helped build a young high growth company I am all too familiar with the number of levers available to a management team to manipulate prices or to manipulate marketing to manipulate your top line revenue growth. And so if to give us some sense of over the early years of an enterprise, whether or not there's really some contribution margin that is growing and scaling back to the business, uh, that's what we like to look at. So that's on the earliest side. I mentioned book value on the latest side. And for companies that are, let's say, uh, a, a business like in Alibaba or like a Tencent, where you have these conglomerates, they're actually a little bit more complicated because we look at their investment portfolio, we take their investment portfolio and we value that mark to market you know, in real time. And then we separate out their operating assets. And we tend to value their operating assets at a value at, at a multiple to ideally free cash flow. Uh, although in many instances, these companies are in investment mode. So we focus first on their operating cash flow line. Uh, we think about what a normalized amount of capex to keep their existing business going. That gives us a normalized free cash flow multiple to use, and then you can kind of combine the investment portfolio plus give me a multiple of free cash flow. Uh, and given the growth rate that we expect in that free cash flow over time, that gives us a value for that business. So those are the that's sort of our extreme of valuation considerations. And do you invest across all sectors and industries or do you have certain ones you focus on or certain ones you avoid? Uh, I mean, certainly the ones the, the ones we uh, aim to focus in are the ones we know best. Going from my own investment career, uh, that includes um, retail, uh, e-commerce, uh, advertising, uh, cloud services and software, uh, a bit of payments. Um, I like to say in, in a lot of cases, it's a lot of the a lot of the businesses that Everlane was a customer of. 
uh, or you know that I've had other experiences uh, investing with in the past. One of the interesting things I noticed about the fund is you, um, in addition to investing in the U.S., you sort of picked China as your, as your other area you'd focus on. And I'm just wondering what it is about China right now and the growth that's going on there that made you attracted to it. Uh, there's a large mutual fund company, Bailey Gifford, uh, operates out of Scotland. They're one of the largest money managers in the U.K. Uh, they're very public with, with a lot of their research. And uh, they pointed out themselves that they're because they're, they're agnostic. You know, they have no bias to the U.S. over China. They'll invest anywhere in the world. And they, they always sort of point out, they're like, yeah, we're a little confused. The Americans allow the competition that they're in with China to cloud their judgment over the quality of some of the companies that are getting built there. Uh, and I thought it was nice to sort of hear this outsider perspective uh, on what they see across these, you know, large, uh, large leaders competing against each other. Uh, so I, there's there, there's a very long list of publicly available information about the hundreds of millions of people that have come out of poverty in China, about some of the many progressive measures that they are making to continue to allow the private sector to flourish. There's a lot of mixed messages around how the countries are going to play with each other with respect to allowing securities to trade on each other's exchanges. Uh, the free flow of, of capital uh, between the two countries is pretty critical to the continued growth of both of those countries. So barring a, a complete war and shutdown and separation of economies, which by the way, is gonna have so many other ripple effects and affect so many other things in negative ways. For the most part, I think that anyone that's got a 10 plus year investment horizon ought to have at least a quarter of their portfolio uh, in Chinese securities, if not more than that. And at this particular moment in time, given a lot of the things I just listed of contention between the countries, debate over where Chinese stocks are gonna be listed, uh, a number of companies in China have gotten defensive because the US has gotten more aggressive and they've made sure that they now have a listing in Hong Kong, in addition to the US, in addition to mainland China. And as investors, uh, the more exchanges that trade the shares, the less risk there is to us because we can always take our shares to another uh, another exchange and trade them there. So this this cloud of uncertainty is is exactly the type of situation that has created opportunities for us as investors. Alibaba that I've referenced, even even if you include their entire investment portfolio and evaluation, is trading at a little bit under twenty times free cash flow, which is a I'm pretty sure that's close to a, a, a value multiple, <laughs> but I guess I'd have to ask other value investors to get their opinion. Uh, so it's it's a rare moment where we're seeing some of the best prices we've ever seen for businesses that have incredibly high market share and really strong industries with a lot of profit growth ahead of them. Uh, and um, yeah, for the time being, you know, that's that's why we're drawn there. It sounds like you take a really long-term view with your investment just approach and philosophy but also like your the holdings that you're buying you're you're sort of looking at these as you know long-term compounding machines that probably will be in the portfolio for you know a, a long period of time although though you can correct me if i'm wrong but where i want to sort of go with this question is what would you, how would you explain your your sell process or your sell philosophy because a lot of times that can trip trip investors up. So how do you go about thinking about when you prune a position in the sell strap? So it's the, you know, do as I do, as I say, not as I do, you know, we've, we've screwed up selling as much as anyone else has screwed up selling. Uh, but we are very clear about how we're supposed to sell. Uh, 
when we do so, uh, which is the, the, the number one reason to potentially abandon the security that you did all this research and you justified all the work and the price was right is, is there a deterioration in the market share for that business? And what's causing it? Is it something that the management team can fix in the short term? Or is this now an inexorable trend for the company? And that multiple that might look cheap, perhaps isn't so cheap. Uh, I'll use one example here, uh, which is there, it's a smaller position in our portfolio, but Google. Uh, Google is a company that it's obviously has a very strong moat. Uh, it's attracted a number of different investors across both value and growth spectrums, depending on however they like to approach it. Uh, and our issue with Google, which was formerly a larger position in our portfolio, is that in two critical areas of their business, so their company is primarily, they have their advertising on Google, advertising off Google, uh, they have YouTube, and then they have their enterprise services and cloud company. And in both the Google ad and ads off Google world, they have rapidly been losing share to other digital ad players. Primarily Amazon, who's been stealing a huge chunk of product placement ads from them. Uh, so if you imagine when you used to Google products, you get those little product placement ads over on the right. Uh, Amazon, in introducing its own, in its own uh, product placement ads, has been stealing a lot of that share from Google. And that shows up in deteriorated pricing for Google. That shows up in deteriorating uh, volumes or attractiveness from, uh, from some of the better advertisers. And then the other area, which is enterprise services, which you might have thought that Google should have been winning the race in, is Microsoft dusted itself off after so many years and has been killing Google. The share that they've taken in Teams with Microsoft Azure, it, it, it frankly looks really bad. Uh, and Google has not been moving very quickly to respond to those market share losses on the ad side or on the enterprise services side. And those are both very, very clear examples to us of a business that we're wary of. And like I said, we own a small piece of it uh, in our portfolio today. It is not a core position uh, because we would need to see uh, a reversal in those sorts of fundamentals in order to be more excited about holding a company like that. Well, I'm wondering if that plays into the next question, which is I want to ask you, I know you've kind of voiced some concern or uh, degree of cautiousness of, around investing in you know, innovation or innovative companies. And I wanted just to kind of get your sense as to you know, what would be the reasons for that and what should investors sort of you know, be aware of when thinking about investing in these innovative companies. Because obviously all around us, you're seeing all these unicorns come public. You're seeing all these like companies with you know, getting into new technologies and things like that. So what would be your view on investing in innovative type companies and what should investors should be aware of? Sure. Uh, on, on the innovation side, we really like to be behind very large, very long technology trends. And so taking something as simple as the, the internet, which really started to catch on in the late 90s, early 2000s, the internet was a radical change in first communication. And uh, after that, we saw that it also very quickly affected commerce and advertising industries. Now there's a number of other technologies that followed around that. You then had mobile that followed thereafter uh, as, a, as a productivity tool where now you could sort of take the internet with you. 
But this has been a very long tail of, uh, of opportunities created by the internet to build a lot of these new business models over a new communications um, architecture. Now, at this moment, I agree. There, there are, we're hearing a lot of things in energy. We're hearing a lot of things in healthcare. We're hearing some things in software. Uh, for, for the industry that we've historically operated, blockchain is the most fascinating thing that is happening. If the internet completely changed how we communicate, I think blockchain is going to change how contracts are written, which means ownership structures are going to change. And that is an incredibly fascinating architecture to follow. There are a number of new business models that are going to form on top of that. Uh, now, that said, if you go back to the early advent of the internet, AOL was one of the shittiest media companies that was built on the internet but it was the first. And so it had its little hype cycle and people got really caught into it. And I think we're at a very similar moment within the evolution of blockchain as the, as the next long, decades long uh, technology trend that's gonna be underneath us is you're hearing from very early companies in the space. I actually think the Coinbase CEO does a great job of managing expectations and reminding investors that we are at a very, very early stage of this. And being early stage does not mean that you should be investing in it. It means that you need to be prepared for an immense amount of volatility because there's a lot of capital being thrown at this from large incumbents, from venture capital firms, from middle stage growth firms that are all trying to figure out what are the new business models are going to form uh, on this infrastructure. And so for, for, for a compound Kings portfolio, where we talk about investing in companies that have a proven business model that then they can scale it is way, way, way too early for us to start identifying the winners and getting to ride along uh, with them. So it's, it's really about identifying like who the winners are gonna be and just understanding that you're not gonna be able to really pick those winners probably effectively. A lot of times in these you know, high growth or innovative type industries, I think um, you know, it's not necessarily the first one out of the gate that is always the most successful. Yeah. And I think there's a second point to add on there. You're asking a lot about valuation earlier, and we were talking about you know, some of the silly things that were going on in December through February. And when you're at the, the earliest point in a technology cycle, and we're staring at some of the highest prices we've seen for small cap companies or for companies coming out you know, with a new technology, the issue is that these are the... Um, there are a lot of uh, stocks out there that are being attached to a technology, but they're not yet being attached to a proven business model. And that means there's going to be enormous. We do not pay a premium for that. We, we would much rather pay a premium for a business model uh, that we know that has potential underneath it. And we can you know, measure out its addressable market and, and things of that nature. Uh, but we're certainly not going to bet on a technology for technology's sake. I think one of the unique things about your ETF um, is you might be the only equity ETF that has authorization to invest in private securities. We were talking before the podcast, fixed income ETFs can do it, but on the, on the equity side, it's, it's really, I think you, you might have the only ETF that's currently has that um, authorization to do that. So even though we're talking about, I think, some of the risks and downsides of investing in companies that are too early stage, I mean, how do you, with that authorization, how do you view the role of private companies in your portfolio today? So, um, first, a, a little a little background on that. You're asking about uh, converting our, our hedge fund into a, a public security before. 
And we were pre-IPO investors in Airbnb. And so when we talked about getting to bring our track record and our investors and all of our assets with us, it, it, it was a very fortunate requirement by the SEC that we had to bring everything with us because that is also what enabled us to grandfather our authorization of investing private companies uh, into our ETF. So now going forward, what is the relevance and importance of having a, a private a piece of the portfolio? I, I will say, I do think most actively managed portfolios, if you fast forward out 15 years from now, will be invested in both private and public companies. Uh, as growth investors, we think it's important to always be looking across the spectrum of companies that are public, companies that are private, companies that are newly being funded. Uh, it allows us to have a much wider lens of visibility on what the competitive landscape looks like for the companies that we're investing in and whether or not our our public counterparts are doing enough to keep up with their private counterparts. Uh, so I think it's really important if you really want to understand an industry well uh, to focus on both. And eventually, I, I do think this is where ETFs are really powerful long term. It, I believe, is the best vehicle that it was going to enable non-accredited investors to participate in private opportunities because the, the accreditation rules are, as some argue that I agree with, quite a bit prejudiced because they only allow people to invest in private companies if they have a certain amount of money, not if they have a certain amount of investment training. And there's a number of investment managers that are going to be able to do the work to go out there and help work through all the private opportunities that are out there to help bring a few of the best into the portfolio and help make those companies available to a wider base of investors. I want to ask you about concentration quick. Um, you know, it seems like these days, pretty much all, you know, most of the flows going into the equity, you know, equity markets are going into index funds and, you know, everybody seems to be indexing, but, you know, like us, you know, you seem to be a big believer in concentration. I'm wondering if you could just talk about maybe what the advantages for investors are, maybe investing in more concentrated portfolios versus just buying, you know, market, buying the market and buying index funds. Well, first, certainly as a as an active uh, investment manager, one of the very true and fair criticisms of a lot of mutual funds that have gotten really big is they just track indexes. So what are you even picking? What work are you doing in trying to differentiate a mutual fund from the NASDAQ or from the S&P 500 or from another index? They simply hold too many securities to be able to really offer even the potential for a different return. So first off, I think concentration is now a requirement if you want to be an active investment manager. I think if, you, if you're coming out with a product that has more than 100 stocks in it, I, I think investors are going to be skeptical that there's any chance that you're going to be able to offer something more than they're able to get with an index. And I'll tell you, as an active investment manager, I can't follow that many stocks. We can certainly build the team out and invest more in it, but as a portfolio manager that has to make individual buy and sell decisions, it's a very, I'm very, very focused on the top 10 stocks in our portfolio and knowing everything we can possibly know about those businesses. So I think, I think it's really concentration is the only thing that fits for an active investment manager. And I, I hope and it would be exciting to see a lot more products like this uh, coming out there in the ETF vehicle. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it seems like the coronavirus might be sort of a switching point for this. You know, it, it seems like people are much more open to concentrated funds and different funds and, you know, thematic funds. And it seems like a lot of that stuff, you know, investors are more open to that now than they were before the coronavirus. For two reasons. Um, 
the the pan market disruptions of that nature uh, create more extreme moments of stock price uh, dispersion between different stocks. So I, I would, you know, to that point, active investment managers at the end of 2020 looked really good for the first time in a long time because you had indexes that were holding 500, 1,000, 2,000 securities, and they were forced to carry a lot of bad companies or, or companies that just got absolutely crushed by Corona, whereas active managers were able to be much more nimble around the businesses that would benefit the most from the changes that we were undergoing at a very rapid pace. So ultimately, I, I think there's a place for both of these products in the future. I mean, for the average, uh, for the average saver and investor with long-term time horizon, you should probably have mostly index funds in your portfolio. It's very safe, it's very diversified. But for some sleeve of your portfolio, whether you're picking those stocks yourselves or you're finding investment managers that you're excited to, to learn from and participate with along the way, that's where I think these active funds are going to play a role in the future. We, we talked about uh, sell strategy before, and I think one of the other really challenging things, is, particularly with a concentrated portfolio, is getting position weighting right. Um, so I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about, you know, uh, as quants, we just tend to equally weight everything. So just take the decision out of our hands, but you, you don't do that. And I'm wondering if you maybe talk about how you think about, you know, how you weight the positions in your portfolio and how you maybe balance, you know, projected returns with risk when you think about that. There's a couple of ways we approach it. Uh, one is we absolutely think of our entire portfolio as forming a company. So if 13% of our portfolio is Facebook, 13% uh, of the revenue of our portfolio is coming from whatever Facebook's revenue is and of the cash flow therefore. So we, we sort of group, we, we subtotal the whole portfolio up as if it's its own company. And if you look at what our portfolio looks like, for example, relative to the S&P 500, by the way, this is the first time I can say this in the history of managing this fund is we trade at the same gross profit multiple, at the same EBIT multiple as the S&P 500, but our average revenue growth rate is 20% and the S&P's is about 10%. In the past, I've historically had to pay a premium to the valuation of the S&P uh, in order to get that excess growth. And we're at sort of a funny moment in time where some of these larger growth companies are trading uh, at surprisingly attractive uh, multiples. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because valuation plays a very important part of portfolio position. And so the two things that we focus the most on how big we're willing to make a, make a position is how large is the industry in which the company is growing or participating? And two, what is the multiple for that business? Because that's gonna have a very significant impact on how much of that business's revenue and cash gets rolled up, up, up into our portfolio business. We're really careful about niche opportunities. It's, it's, it'd be very risky, for example, to, to, make, to take a domestic-only uh, fashion brand and make it a top three position because you, you've narrowed your universe of growth opportunities to one market, a single vertical, a single set of customers, and that's very dangerous. To, it's much more dangerous to us than a company that has a global footprint uh, with multiple sales channels and other many ways to sort of grow its product footprint. That makes sense. And do you, do you have a limit in terms of how concentrated you can be in an individual position? You know, we used to run an ETF and I believe there were some rules that were you know, brought upon us in terms of how, how much we could be concentrated in an individual position or our top 10 stocks or something like that. But do you have your own rules in terms of how concentrated you'll get? 
Yeah, the, the IRS has the IRS has the, the first set of rules, which is no more than 50 percent of your fund can be made up of five percent or greater positions. So that that single law alone forces most funds to have at least 20 to 25 securities. The reason for that law is an investment fund could register itself by stock entirely in a single company. And the IRS goes, uh, 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 you're a company if you do that. You're not an investment fund any longer. So that's that's the IRS's rule. The SEC has a more stringent rule uh, where if you want to be called a diversified fund, you have to be even more diversified than that. I believe the rule is a 25% threshold. We do not meet that threshold. So by the SEC standard, we are a non-diversified fund. By the IRS standard, we are a diversified fund. And relative to our own rules, I'll, I'll, I'll say financial markets are very, it is one of the most competitive industries in the world. So if we are finding opportunities to concentrate a significant portion in our fund into stocks that are as attractive or more attractive than anything that we've found before, we're gonna get as concentrated as we can. And while we're small, right now, our largest position is about 15% of the fund. Our second is about 13 or 14%. So we're running at a pretty high concentration. As we get bigger over time, we may start bumping into liquidity requirements because then if you become too much of an individual stock's trading volume, there's other rules that kick in. But for any fund that's under a billion dollars under management, you can pretty much just operate by that IRS limit. I just want to ask you one last question on concentration. You know, one of the biggest lessons I've probably learned in my career, because we run concentrated strategies as well, is, you know, the, the difference between maybe investor returns and sort of your actual returns. And so, you know, early in our career, we would get, you know, even more concentrated than we get now. But we realized, you know, it, it put us in a tough position in terms of the ability to generate investor returns and investors to stick with the strategy. I'm just wondering how you think about that. Do you, do you incorporate the idea of, you know, can investors stick with this? Am I getting too different from the benchmark into your process? Or do you think it's, it's more important maybe just to attract the right kind of investors who are going to stick with the strategy no matter how much it deviates? I, it's, I've been hearing more about this recently, about yeah, the issue of you may run a great fund, but there are a number of investors that buy the ETF at a at a, at a high or a peak multiple, and it becomes really difficult for them to do as well as the average fund returns over a long period of time. I, I think there's another way to answer that question. And for a lot of investors that I've, that I've spoken with, anytime someone comes and says, hey, I like what you're doing, I'd, I'd like to invest a little bit, I tell them, great, invest a quarter of it. You know, don't put the whole thing in. And then, you know, read our literature, see the quarterly letter, watch the Friday videos, uh, see how we do, listen to the types of investments that we make. And if you like what you're hearing at some arbitrary point in the future, put in the next 25% and then the next 25%. So there's people that buy a little bit every week, people that buy a little bit every month. There's people that sequence in years over years. Dollar cost averaging is the only way that one can diversify against the risk of buying into a fund on the wrong date or time. So you know, coming back to something like Berkshire Hathaway as an example, Berkshire Hathaway has been a publicly traded investment fund, technically not an investment fund uh, because of how they've organized the company. But it has been a it has been a uh, it has been participating with capital allocators over a long period of time. And in the same way that, you know, I've bought Berkshire when it's traded close to book value and I haven't bought it at other times. I think other investors will, over time will learn how to participate with funds and track them and become permanent buyers as opposed to buying a fund, sell out a fund, and trying to come up with a new idea of participating in another fund. 
we had um, uh, Lawrence Cunningham, who's like a scholar on Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett. And one of the things that he pointed out in the, in the podcast was that they have some of the lowest degree of shareholder turnover um, in the shareholder base. So they have very high quality shareholders. And one of the reasons, and this kind of gets into one of this question is, you know, Buffett and Munger's communication style and their consistent messaging over whatever it is, 55 years, how they've kind of stuck to their, their core messages. And you, in your last response, you were just kind of hitting on some of the, I think, unique things that, you know, you and your, your firm are doing in terms of experimenting with different ways you're trying to communicate your message out to interested investors. So what, you know, just, I mean, maybe highlight some of the different experiments that are taking place with investment manager communication and some of the interesting stuff you guys are doing. I actually want to dig into the, the Buffett shareholder comment uh, briefly and then go back to investor communication, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Go um, yes, it is so cool what Buffett has done with attracting long-term investors and getting them to stick around, you know, the whole way through. He's about to break the NASDAQ's, uh, you know, numerical system with his A shares. So cool. He's getting all this press. He's not even paying for it. Uh, there is a trade-off. And I believe one of the biggest reasons why Berkshire, particularly within the last 12 months, was available at so good at so, such good of a price is because of a lack of turnover in his investor base. So I, I would liken this to a period of, if, you, if you've ever grown a venture-backed growth company, uh, there are investors that like to participate at the seed stage, at the venture stage, at the growth stage, at the mature stage, and at the end stage. And it is entirely possible that had Berkshire been a little bit more proactive in refreshing his shareholder base over the years, they very may well run a much more progressive portfolio today and they very may well trade at at least a market multiple, if not a slight premium to market multiple. So one of the issues with carrying that same investor base with him over the duration of his entire career is he has carried their investment time horizon with them as well. So there are very few 22-year-olds that are looking at Berkshire Hathaway and saying, I can invest in that for the next 50 years, for the next 30 years, the next 20 years. And so this is where, you know, I'm 37 and I have a six month old baby. And so my investment horizon is 18 years until I need to turn money in compound kings into money in, you know, college funds for the baby. And if I run this company correctly, compound kings will always have that 18 year investment horizon in mind for other folks that are early in their careers and are interested and potentially achieving a higher return, knowing that there's a little bit more volatility that comes with that. So fundamentally, I think there's a different investment product that can be offered. Um, there's something in between, you know, a one-year holding period and a 55-year uh, holding period that uh, that we think has to be considered. So then, the second part of your question around investor communication, which uh, this is another one of the areas that I, I I looked at Buffett with so much admiration because you know he had he held his annual meetings and by doing his annual meetings. He was able to bring so much more attention to what he and Charlie were doing than if he operated quarterly earnings calls. He knew that he was just going to dilute his own message if he was out there every month. So he, I, I think Buffett has had a much more progressive communication with investors, even though he's been doing the same thing for so long. 
which is rely on something that's once a year and let the press tell your story. He gets very active with the press after he, in the period of time between he launches the letter and then he does the, the gathering in Omaha. And it's like, he's like, he's like promoting his own tour. You know, he writes the letter and he goes out, he does all the promotion and he sells the tickets and he fills the seats and he puts on a show. That's super cool. And I think a lot of investment managers are trying to think now that they have the web, how do I do this? I think Kathy Wood, everyone's got an opinion on her because everyone has heard what she's doing from her. And I think it would be awfully great if every investment manager found opportunities of becoming more public with their research or their process. Uh, because that way, the more opinions you get on what you're doing, then it's your job as the investment manager to figure out which one of these have substance, which one of these do I need to reply to, which one of these are trolls and we can just ignore, and you know, there's that nonsense. But I think you need to meet investors where they are. And I, I, I've got a lot more to learn from, from you all. I'm new to this. You know, I'm still testing out Twitter and YouTube videos and things like that. But I can even tell from little interactions that you get from people offline that are saying, hey, I heard this or I saw that. Uh, it's really cool to get to do opportunities like this as a, as a new manager. Yeah, those are, those are excellent points, especially the one about Buffett and the shareholders. That's a little bit contrarian, but it's a, it's a very interesting way to sort of think about, um, those high quality shareholders and maybe how a little bit more turnover in the shareholder base could have maybe benefited them, um, in some way. So, um, yeah, good stuff. So in closing, I just, we, we, we kind of have this new closing question here. Um, and, um, we want to ask you based on your experience in the market, um, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average individual investor, what would it be? It's a monster question. Is there a, uh, it's a tough one. And you guys have interviewed some, some very impressive folks. Uh, so, uh, I'm not going to try to, uh, I'm not going to try to outperform any of them. Uh, I think especially uh, this is something I work through a lot with um, new analysts that have, have joined me at, at Upholdings is um, unfortunately you can't take what management says at face value. Um, there is a lot of marketing that is built into management's communication with investors. Uh, and uh, the, the way that um, you know, I, I, I train it or the way that we talk through it is if management says something that becomes an absolutely critical part of your reason for making an investment into that company, uh, you need to identify your own sources of truth to validate that metric, that claim, that competitive positioning, whatever that is. And that can come from some alternative data source, that can come from talking to an expert, that can come from a relationship with a media member that also has access to other things about the company. Uh, so, and what I've found in encouraging um, individuals to uh, identify their own truth uh, around the most critical reasons that they own a company is it, it it immunizes you from all of the noise that happens because the press tries to take positions on companies. It tries to paint, you know, good versus bad. Uh, management teams just try to promote their companies until they're until they're blue in the face. But if you've done your work 
to validate that that specific truth, which is your reason for owning the stock in the first place. It's like a yeah, it's a piece of protection uh, that makes you really excited to see the share price go down because then you're like, give me more. You know, I know that this business model is working and I know that it's going to do more for shareholders. Uh, so I'm happy to you know, buy more and more of it. Good stuff. Um, if people want to learn more about you, what you guys are working on, the research, the ETF, where can they go to find out more? Uh, the first place is really the, the kingsetf.com, K-N-G-S. And uh, we're, we're on the web. So if, if you want to find us from there, you know, we respond to emails and uh, all the new stuff. So Great. We'll put links to uh, your your site and research in the, in the show notes as well. So listen, Robert, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this was really great. We really appreciate all the time and uh, best of luck with uh, the new ETF. We're very excited for you. Justin, thank you, Jack. Appreciate the time. Nice being with thank you guys. You. And if you're wondering why I asked Robert about his favorite U2 song, that's because he started his career at Elevation Partners, a private equity firm co-founded by U2's Bono. Robert's top U2 track is In A Little While, which he considers vastly underrated. The song's actually about a hangover, and it later became one of Joy Ramone's favorites in his final days. As Robert put it, what more can you ask for? Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.